So Aaron has done the heavy lifting um, through the book of Jude. And so today we are doing an overview of the book of Jude, all 25 verses. Um, and so the uh, what we can really appreciate about this book is the fact that it does give us some insight and why I, I'll explain why I think it was actually uh, canonized. So the, the New Testament was put into a canon at the Council of Carthage in, in 397, okay? And so that, that is when they basically, if you will, I'll have to put my thumb in here, basically closed the book and said, up, no more, okay? The scripture is closed for the New Testament, okay? And so that was in 397. So Jude, obviously, it's in your uh, Bible, was one of those books that was included in that canon. And so um, when you look at it, a lot of people kind of wonder, like, well, why was it in there? So hopefully we'll get to talk about that um, today. So Jude starts out, and Aaron already explained that basically, you know, who Jude might be, and basically most people assume that it's the brother of James who is also the brother of Jesus, all right? So he's a half-brother of Jesus Christ, okay? And so, um, but he doesn't start out. He says, hey, I'm, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ, and I am the brother of James. He doesn't start off with the fact, hey, by the way, I'm the brother of Jesus, right? He doesn't start out with that that way. What he is basically saying is that I'm coming to you with the authority as a spokesperson for the church. In other words, this is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the body of Christ. And that is who is the head of the church. And I am a servant of his. And I am the brother of James, who is the primary leader at the, ch the church in Jerusalem, okay? So, so this is the beginning of the, uh, the church. So James is the, the head of that church. You see James throughout the uh, book of Acts, and you see him acting, and you see him acting with uh, the authority. So he had that authority. So he's, what Jude is saying is, this is a message from the head and the heart of the church, right? So that's what he, he's, that's where he's opening up. He says, hey, this is something. And so one of the reasons why I'm pointing this out is that if we want to make sure that uh, we are staying in track, one of the key stepping stones for our Christian walk is to look at what has the church done for now 2,000 years and who knows how long it will tarry, right? For 2,000 years, the church has promoted marriage as one man, one woman for life, right? So we can look at those things and we can build those building blocks, right? And so we can look, we can look at and go back and say, okay, how, what has the authority of the church said? And that's one of the things that Judas, his first stepping stone, is says, hey, I'm coming under this umbrella. I'm coming under the headship of the, of the chief head of the church, Jesus Christ, and I'm coming under the authority of the church, my brother James. Then he goes on, to, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, or some translations may say, by for or by, but they were beloved in the Father. One of the things that um, is that sometimes is we sometimes we try to divide the Godhead. And it, to illustrate, I want to go back to something that Jesus said in John chapter five. I'll be reading from John chapter five and picking up in verse eighteen. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, 
making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works and greater works than these he will show him so that many may marvel. As for the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment and has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now at hand that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So John is giving us an insight as to what Jude is saying. He says, when he says, hey, you are called, you are set apart, you are called for this purpose, right, to be a part of the household of God, and you are beloved in the Father and kept by and or for Jesus Christ, right? So God is saying, I am snatching you away. I am redeeming you for a people to be my own, right? And so that's why we see them both working together because it's God who saves, right? And then he goes on to says to say, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Because you are called, right, the attributes of God are at your resources, right? You can go to God and say, God, I need mercy. You are the God of mercy. Would you give me mercy? God, you are the God of love. Would you give me love, right? Would you bestow upon me? Would you give me peace? You are the God that wants to be at peace with mankind. And you have paved a way to do that. So he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There is a great resource, a great storehouse of you available to you through Jesus Christ, right? Because of what he has done. Then he gets that. So that's just his opening comments about his, you know, his, his uh, statements to uh, these people that he's writing to. Then he recites, beloved, he calls them beloved again. Although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation. So he wanted to write, he was obviously just like Jesus, Jewish, right? He had to make that transition from being Jewish to being Christian, right? And so he had to become a Christ follower. He had to make that transition and so he says, hey, I wanted to write you about this common salvation. We can read about that, that difference in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, hey, God has taken down the dividing wall, right? He has made the two one. Both Jews and Gentiles now come to the Lord through the Jesus Christ, right? He has, he has rent that, that separating wall and made it so that we can approach God individualists. And so he, he wanted to write about that, right? And so um, one thing that when, as modern believers, we don't necessarily think about the, what some of the struggles um, go is that when I think, let me just put it personal, when I think about salvation, I'm thinking, well, I want to believe because I want to be with forever with God, Right? In other words, there is a, I have a destination thinking in mind. 
I, in other words, some people say, well, you know, I, I just accepted the Lord because I wanted the fire, you know, fire insurance. I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to burn in hell. Uh, I just want to go to heaven and, and be with God. So, but, the, but that reveals that they're thinking there's an afterlife, right? There is a time after this fleshly life that we have that we uh, are concerned about. And I've heard a statistic very recently, and, and it was contemporary Jews, mostly in America, and I was astonished at this figure. But as for people, for Jews that believe in the concept of their being, even being an afterlife, only 22 to 23% of Jews even believe that there is an afterlife. And that just astounded me. I thought, wow, I, you know, it just, it was hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around. They don't even think of there being an afterlife. That's one of the motivational things for me to, to, to be a Christian and to be lifelike is that afterlife. When I get to exchange this corrupted body for that incorruptible one. You know, I, I'm looking forward to that. So he, when he says, you know, he wants to write about that common salvation, that was the transitional uh, segment that, that the Jews were having uh, to make. And I'm, I'm surprised at the number of, of them that actually still don't believe in an afterlife concept today. And so, obviously, that leaves room of 80% of the Jews for us to do some work with, right? It just created a, an opportunity field for us. So, but he says, but I found this, I have this burden, right? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He said, but I got this burden, right? I, I was going in this direction and I changed the way that I was was ready was going, and I I have this burden right to to, to urge you and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I'm going to come back and visit that a little bit more in a moment. Um, he goes on. He says, "For this one of the the." the underlying layer for this is he says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So for this reason, I got this burden, right? I want to come back to you and I want to say, hey, you know, we have this, this faith that we need to contend for. And so this is this the section of this book that I believe as to why it was canonized. If you look at, if you compare, and I, I, I just did this generally. You could do this more, and, I, and maybe this could be your, your midweek study this week, is compare the elements in Jude to the elements in 2 Peter chapter 2. You will find a lot of parallels. You will find the Balaam's heir in there. You will find the fallen angels. You will find all of the same parallel imagery as going on in 2 Peter. Well, if that was all in 2 Peter and they don't know who wrote first and who copied who and, you know, like they were both, you know, they're pointing fingers at each other. But what we know is that the early church, led by the Spirit, said, no, we need this book included in our canon, our measuring. A canon means a measuring rod. And it means that what does, this, what does the Scripture have to meet? What measuring rod elements does the Scripture have to meet to be in our Bible? That's what canonization means. And so the, it made it, and I believe that it has made it into this for this one concept. Because the rest of it is pretty much duplicated elsewhere. Um, and so I, I, uh, I want to expound on that a little bit more. But at the beginning of verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, 
So twice in this book, Jude says, hey, I want to remind you, and he goes on later in verse 17 and says, you must remember, right? And so when we, when we think about, I want to take a few moments, and, and what do we need um, to remember, right? So in verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. How long is long ago? Have you thought about that? Somebody asked me yesterday, um, what did the first commandment say? And this is my answer. This was my answer, I should say. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the first commandment. You have one tree, every tree you can eat of, except one. And the consequence of breaking that commandment, you will surely die. Right? So how long ago were they designated for condemnation? If you break the law, you will suffer the consequences. Clear from the Garden of Eden is how long ago Jude is saying they have been designated for this condemnation. God will do what he said he's going to do, right? And he goes on, and, and we see in this, in this book how people are reserved for punishment, right? And so Jude is saying, hey, clear from the beginning, you are you know how long this has been the story of God. If you do not do, if you do not follow my will, you will suffer the consequences. That's the story, right? And so I want you to uh, to to think with me as I, uh, when he says, he says, I want to remind you. And so, um, I want you to kind of think with me about, so we had, uh, we have Adam, and we have the whole patriarch era, right? The early uh, people on earth. And um, so God was dealing with each one. When he came to Cain, he says, hey, Cain, Where's your brother? Right? He didn't come. Hey, household of people, does anybody know? I'm missing Abel. Does anybody know where Abel is? No, he comes to Cain on a one by one basis and says, Hey, Cain, where is your brother? Right? So, what I'm really illustrating is that God was dealing with people on a one by one basis, all the way up to the point of Abraham, right? And so he, so he deals with mankind on a one-by-one one basis. And then, what I want us to remember is how did that transition occur? What are some of the things that we know? What are the things, some of the things that we can be reminded of of how that transition occurred? And so I want you to, to, to stick in your mind. First of all, who was the promiser? Abraham was given a promise. You will have a what? A son, right? And so, so, and he won. So Isaac was a miracle, right? Because it was such a miracle that Abraham, <laughs> God, you think I'm going to have a son? So he laughed at God, right? And so, it was a miracle, right, that Abraham had a son. And so there was all of, so we start down this line of 
miracles of the establishment of God working with one nation, right? So he preserves, he sets them into Canaan, he sets them out, right? And then they have a famine along, they go down to Egypt. And then guess what comes along to pressure them out of Egypt? Miracle after miracle after miracle. We have the burning bush, right? That Moses, see, we have the salvation of Moses in the first place, right? That he, that he defied the death sentence on his life and that he became that, he was raised up in the moat. He saw the burning bush. What is this thing that I see before me, right? And he goes along and then we have the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? Those are miracles, miraculous miracles. Then we have the whole Exodus, right? The parting of the Red Sea. We have the, the, all the miracles in, in the sign of the manna from heaven, right? Think of these things. So, so then in, when they go to, they are to, uh, in, in this, uh, book, uh, Jude reminds them, you know, says, um, that Jesus who saved a people that who Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. In other words, they were supposed to go in. They sent uh, tell all spies in, right? Ten were bad and two were good, right? Two of them saw it. So, man, we can do this, right? Yes, Joshua and Caleb says, we can do this, right? We can, we can with the Lord's help, we can do this in the tense of no way, you know, right? And so that for that disobedience, they were suffered to um, be destroyed, right? And so we see the, the miracles that of them wandering in the wilderness. And then they cross again on dry land, right? They cross the Jordan again. And then they go in, and then you see Jericho, right? Boom! The walls fall down, right? So I'm illustrating to you the miracles after miracles of miracles of the establishment of God working with one people group. And he works with that one people group until they get to the point when the fullness of time has come, there's coming a change. Right? And so then so what then what do we remember? We remember that Zechariah has a son. He becomes mute. We know that that Mary is expecting, and only she knows why. She has this immaculate conception. Then we see Jesus on the scene. When we see miracle after miracle after miracle and miracles, right? We see the miracle of the ascension the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is that what is all of these miracles, this cluster of miracles, right, is transitioning us back to God dealing with everyone one-on-one. On one. Instead of dealing with them as a nation like they did with the Israelites, Abraham's children, says, nope, I'm going to do all these miracles as the big indicator to you, right, that I'm doing something new, right? The fulfillment has been made, right? Jesus has fulfilled. He is the redemption that has fulfilled everything that I wanted from the Jewish people. And now I'm going to deal with you one by one. So these are some of the things that I wanted you to remember is that we, that we see a huge miraculous events in the transition of from dealing one-on-one -on -one to dealing with the nation of Israel as a people set aside to be his light and they were to be attractive right they were to proclaim God Jehovah to the world and that eclipsed now with new sets of miracles right and so then um, we see a few more miracles, right, in the Acts of the Apostles, right? The guy falls out the window and Paul goes, oh, you know, runs down and falls on the guy, right? And he comes back to life, right? I would call that unexplained natural circumstances. In other words, a miracle, right? And so you see um, the establishment of the church as being 
a, a miraculous thing. So you have the ministry of Jesus. I'm going to work with this group of people. I'm going to work and I'm going to put my my uh, laws in their hearts and I'm going to I want to address persons one on one. So these are some of the things when he says, hey, I want to remind you. That's what we need to remember. He says, you know, these are some of the things that we need to remember um, is that God has a way of working with mankind, right? And this is one of the things where I, I said I would come back to verse 3. When he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith that was delivered to the saints is what is the faith that is going to sustain us until the next set of miraculous events. Okay? The faith, that's why I believe this book was canonized. Is that Jude wrote down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says you are to contend for the faith. It was delivered. There's nothing new going to come before the miracles of the consummation of Jesus Christ. He says it's once for all delivered to the saints. This is what you can count on. It was the same faith that was delivered to the early church right through the apostles and it is that same faith that you need to contend for. There is no Bible code. Right? There's no new revelation coming. There's nothing new a way of understanding something. There's no new there are new modes maybe. Um, we lots of us have cell phones and some Preachers teach from tablets, right? There's new modes, right? But there's not anything new in the method of how we believe. The faith that was once for all delivered. That the faith that Jesus Christ was the perfect substitutionary redemptive method for us to have eternal life. Remember when he said, it is up to me, the Father can give life, and the Son can give life, right? If you do evil, you will suffer. If you do good, you will be rewarded. That's what He said when He walked the earth. It's that same faith that He's talking about here. There is no new faith. I believe that's why we see this book canonized for, what it's, for the message that it brings. I I wanted to uh, read a I heard this uh, this psalm on the, this hymn I should say um, on the radio this morning and I thought yeah that's that's one of the things that when I talked about the consummation miracles this is it is well with my soul this is the fourth stanza fourth verse. And the Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumps shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The consummation of Jesus Christ is going to be miraculous. right? In Zechariah, it records that the mountain, the Mount of Olives is going to split from east to west. And it's going to move to the north and it's going to move to the south. I would call that a miracle. The consummation of Jesus Christ will be the next set of miracles. Don't be going around looking for somebody that can do something, right? There's, we have warnings that there's going to be false, false, uh, false miracle signs and methods, right? So don't go looking for them, right? We know what the miracles are going to be. That's going to be a sound that is heard around the earth, right? That, sub, that trumpet call, right? When the clouds are rolled back and the, and the trumpet is called. So those, those are some of the things that this faith 
once for all delivered to the saints is going to go all the way up to that consummation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So he goes on and he and so he then you get into the main body of the scripture. And Aaron did a lot, most of the heavy lifting here. Um when he explained to you, you know, verse by verse what what a lot of this means. So in verses two through seven, you basically so we have the reminders of of the uh of the things that and these are all duplicated in Second Peter chapter two, by the way. Each of these uh each of these stories, right? But the the synopsis is is that actions are going to be judged. That's what he's really saying. That's what Jude is saying. And so he goes on into verses 8, um, 8 and 9 and 10. And in three times in those three verses, he uses the word blasphemy. They blaspheme the glorious ones and that the Michael, the archangel... Um, he did not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil when they were allegedly disputing over the body of Moses. So that's an alleged story that you... And he says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. So what is, three times he uses blasphemy. My Bible dictionary defines blasphemy in this way. Blasphemy is a transliteration of a Greek word meaning to speak harm. So if you think of the context of which all of those three elements that where he uses blasphemy, it does mean to speak harm. In the biblical context, blasphemy is an attitude of disrespect that finds expression in an act directed against the character of God. So Michael even if it's a, an alleged story, what he's saying is that Michael was not going to go against the character of God and speak against God because God had already spoken against Lucifer, right? He had already spoken against you, the devil, and he didn't need to redo. He didn't re need to redo any of those things, and so that is a warning for us, right? That they that. That of not to speak against God. And then he goes on uh, and he gives several examples. Down in verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. So what are those? Those are three examples from the Scriptures of us of people going against God. Right? Cain says, "No, I, I, you need a grain offering, not a, not a, a lamb offering." Balaam says, "No, I can speak against the people of Israel. I, you know, I'm the prophet. I can do what I want, right? I can go against God." Chorus, "Oh, I can go against Moses, and the earth swallow them up, right? Do not go against God." And that's what he says. Watch out for people that are going against God. And he gives out, there are six, uh, six things in here that basically says how nature speaks against uh, the things that people want to do. Animals that understand instinctively. In other words, God has given animals instincts, right? That is one of those things that, that God uses to speak against such things as that humans, you ought not to do what animals do. Because animals are unreasoning and they, op they operate by instinct. He goes on, hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. He says nature is going to be the one thing that is going to stand against those that want to go against God. Nature is in the order of the Father, right? And you cannot go against it without knowing that you are going against God. It will 
speak out. Then he goes on to to sum up again the the um, from the book of Enoch, which um, was not scripture, and they they um, there were three books of Enoch found in the 17th century. 1874, I believe, they brought back three different copies of the book of Enoch. Um, and so it, 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 it was not included. It's called pseudophigrical literature, right? And so it, it means that it operated in this, in this time that they figured it was written around 100, right? We figured that, the, that John wrote the gospel, the gospel of John, the Revelation, excuse me, um, around 90 AD, right? So this was written after that, and so it's it's it it is not included in that uh, that period. But one of the things that that why I believe that the Lord allowed um, this into the Scripture, and actually kind of in my word is inspired it to be there. Um, is that so? He says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying that the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all of the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and that all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism. To gain advantage, the lives of Adam and the lives of Enoch overlapped approximately 300 years. If Enoch did write this book, it's possible that Adam knew about it. It is. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that their lives overlapped by 300 years before Enoch was no more. And so it's possible that Adam would testify, yeah, I was there. God put me in the garden. He gave me this command. And he said, this is the result if you don't follow this command. I will testify, Enoch, that that is right. That God is going to do the judgment that He says He is going to do. He is going to reserve it for the end of the age. That is the story of Scripture. That God is going to do what He has said. So he goes on in verse 17, but you must remember, right? So this is the second one. You must remember, right? That the predictions of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last day, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, right? It is these who cause divisions. And so, um, how do we make sure that we are uh, following uh, the, the, the things that lead us, right, to not uh, follow our passions, right? And so one of the things, I want to read this. I read this this morning. This is from, this is Haley's handbook, Bible handbook. And he has a section on, it's called The Most Important Thing. And there's just one paragraph in here that I want to read. It says, every Christian ought to be a Bible reader. It is the one habit which, if done in the right spirit, more than any other one habit will make a Christian what he ought to be in every way. If any church could get its people as a whole to be devoted readers of the Word of God's Word, it would revolutionize the church. If the churches of any community as a whole would, give, would get their people as a whole to be regular readers of the Bible, it would not only revolutionize the churches, it would purge and purify the community as nothing else could do. So he, I thought he had a great synopsis. Why do we pour ourselves into the reading of the Why do we do this, right? 
He says, because that is what gives us life, right? That is what sets us on the right path. That is what gives us our clear marching orders as to what, how do we walk out this faith once for all delivered to the saints? It's by constant reading of our scriptures and remembering that there's nothing new, right? It's a simple message. It will be the simplest of messages all the way up to the consummation of Jesus Christ returning for his loved ones. So he he opens the letter with the fact that that uh, that you are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, there is an eternal march, there's an eternal concept here of what is going on. You are you as believers, you are called to preach this message, right? And to go on. And then he closes his message, right? He says, Now who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Right? So he says that God has had this, this time unaltered plan from the foundations of the earth. We know that Jesus was slain. That's what Hebrews tells us. And so we know that He has had this plan to have mankind to redeem mankind from his sinful path and ways, right? And to have an eternal relationship with him in eternity future. He says, and to keep those that will not accept it under the punishment of the word, right? And so I want to read to you... um, one of the ways that I look at Jude when um, when I have children in um, Awana that uh, sometimes I have children that are, are more of a kinesthetic type of learner, a hands-on learner, and they can... So I teach them to draw a picture of how to memorize the books of the Old Testament. And it's just, uh, it's just a, a house that it's... I draw it as a square house, right? And out front, it's a Greek-style architecture. And so what's Greek-style? It has four columns out there, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It has four columns. So I then you come in and you have the entry ray, you know? And you so you so I draw it and you get all the way around this house into the last box. I draw a square room, right? And that is the, so the last book in the New Testament is Revelation, right? And so one of the things that I do is that it, for Jude, I draw a little archway into the room of Revelation and I write Jude in there, right? And so that's the way that I see Jude is that Jude Whenever I go into the Grand Canyon or wherever of arches or candy lands or wherever you find arches, I like to go in them and I like to, to go to the point to where I can see a setting and I've, I've taken, I have numerous pictures I can show you. Is that I like to go in and I like to see the frame of the arch, right? And I like to see what's captured in that frame, right? And that's the way I see the book of Jude. Is Jude is capturing a window into Revelation, right? A window into the consummation of Jesus Christ. Hold this faith and contend for this faith once for all delivered to the saints, right? It's going to bring us into the consummation. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. And picking up verse 5, he, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Remember that miracle? Remember that transition that I told you about? 
It's from the Scripture. And he also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels into the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And having glory of God and its radiance like most rare jewel, like grasper clear as crystal. So he goes on to describe in a word picture this new Jerusalem, this new city, right? Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jude is a window into the fact that God is going to do what He has said He will do. He will judge ungodliness, right? Unless you are redeemed through the blood and the, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, you shall not enter. Right? That's the story of the time. The Jude is saying, hey, that's the faith. You gotta trust in Jesus Christ. That's the window into the end, right? If you are thirsty, then put your faith and trust in Him. If you want to, it's it says, um, uh, you, um, I'm trying to think. It starts with a C. I already closed my Bible. I have to open it back up. Um, and when he's describing those who want eternal life. Um, and it goes with Jude's uh, contending. Um, so he says, the one who conquers, I told you it was a C, the one who conquers will have this heritage. When it says contend, that's what conquering, right? Is it's, it's a battle, right? And that's what Aaron brought out, is that, hey, this is a long battle for the church to contend for the simplicity of the faith of which we put in Jesus Christ. It's a simple message, and we must defend it as being simple. You will either accept Jesus Christ, or you will suffer the consequences. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. It's a blessing to our lives, Lord. Thank You for giving it to us so that we don't have to guess, that we can read it, we can understand through Your Spirit, Lord. Thank You for that wonderful thing. We pray, Lord, as we come to read it, that you would bless our lives, Lord, that we would be enriched, that you would bless us as a church as we read Scripture together, Lord. And so as we come to this point to where we read through Jude, we pray that we are a blessed people for knowing what you want to do. Your eternal mission, Lord, is to have people with you in a new Jerusalem, Lord. And so, and that you will rightly divide those who decide not to do that. In Jesus' name, we pray. So I'm going to quickly read over it. I know that Larry come up here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called and loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may peace, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saint, to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these are people, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! They walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They as they feast without fear. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the such harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.